0: Great things are before us, and we want to call the people from their indifference to get ready. The ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are two monumental pillars, one without and one within the church. Upon these ordinances, Christ has inscribed the name of the true God. Christ has made baptism the sign of entrance into his spiritual kingdom. He has made this a positive condition, upon which all must comply who wish to be acknowledged as under the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before man can find a home in the church, before passing the threshold of God's spiritual kingdom, he is to receive the impress of the divine name, the Lord our Righteousness. We are not now to cast away our confidence, but to have firm assurance, firmer than ever before. Let thy kingdom come.
1: Where possible, let us kneel in prayer to begin. Heavenly Father, we, come, we, we humbly come before your throne of grace, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And so, Father, I petition today on this beautiful Sabbath day That you will give us of the blessings that you promised on this day father i pray that you will pour out your spirit upon each and every one of us that we may hear and understand from your word that which you would have us to know lord i pray that you will touch my lips with a call from off your altar that i may present your thoughts today through my words and my body language and my tone of voice i pray that those that are watching and listening will see and hear that which you would have them to hear Father, I pray that you will hide me behind Christ as we look at baptism. This I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in this series on Thy Kingdom Come, we're going to be looking at the coming of Christ's kingdom from three different perspectives, but we're all three going to be focusing in on this topic. And the topic that I'm going to be touching on is baptism. So we're going to look at being baptized with Christ so in this what i'm going to do is i'm going to look at baptism from the spirit of prophecy as found in the bible and then i'm going to look at baptism as found in the spirit of prophecy in the published works of ellen white i don't have the works of the pioneers included in this due to time and brevity i want to try to keep things as short and simple and as sweet as possible but i do highly recommend that you read the book from J.H. Wagner called Thoughts on Baptism. It's very powerful, very powerful. There may be some things in here that we don't necessarily deal with too much today, like trying baptism, but there's a lot of good information in this. And J.H. Wagner concurs very beautifully with that which is given to us in the Bible and through Ellen White. So again, I'm going to try to keep this as simple as possible, and I'm not going to try to throw everything at you at once, because I don't want your minds to get overloaded. There is a lot more that we could talk about. But I'm going to try to answer question number one, which I believe is probably the most important question to start with, and that is, why is this so important? Why does baptism really matter? And then in the second part, what I want to do is... I want to harmonize Matthew 28 28:19 with the apparent contradiction of how the disciples baptized because there does seem to be a contradiction at first glance. And so I want what I want to do is I want to go through that and bring harmony in the word of God between Matthew 28:19 and the apparent contradiction or the apparent actions of the disciples and how they baptized. So with that, we're going to start with Acts chapter 2, and here was probably one of the most powerful sermons ever recorded in the Bible, I believe. In fact, you know you've preached a really powerful sermon when people come to you and say, men and brethren, what shall we do? You know that you have touched hearts when you get that reaction. And that's where we're at in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37, is right after Peter's sermon. It says, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. I want to pause here for just a moment. I want you to notice there are three things. We're going to see a lot of threes through this presentation. And there are three things given there, repentance, remission of sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, all connected with baptism. Moving on, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized which is what we're talking about now. And the same day there were added unto them about 3000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, before I dive into the main focal point of the topic, I I just want to take just a moment and take a little bit of a sidetrack here. I don't like to go side with too many sidetracks because it can be confusing, but I think this is an important Uh, point that needs to be brought out, and that is, I want you to notice that it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The word continue tells us that they didn't just all of a sudden understand the apostles' doctrines after being baptized. They were already in that path of the apostles' doctrines prior to this statement. Does that make sense? That's why it says they continued in them. So sometime prior is when they stepped into that path of the apostles' doctrines. And what had just happened right before this was baptism. So what we see from the word of God very clearly is that they were taught the apostles' doctrines. Then they were baptized. Then it says they continued in those doctrines. So we have here very clearly from the word of God, brothers and sisters, that we can't just willy nilly baptize anybody just because they profess the name of Jesus. People need to be brought into the doctrines and understand them and accept them and then be baptized. Then they can continue in the apostles doctrines. That kind of makes sense. I know that there is some confusion on that, particularly in this movement. And I know for years I had confusion on that as well. So I just wanted to take a a brief sidetrack and point that out. But now I want to dive into the the real focal point that I want to get to, and that is that they were baptized, and then they entered the church. It says, um, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them, that is the church. So they were baptized, and that was the entrance into the church. Does that kind of make sense? Testimonies to the Church, Volume 6, page 91. I highly recommend that everybody read this whole section in Testimonies, Volume 6, page 91. I'm only going to quote the first three paragraphs, and I'm actually going to start with the third paragraph because I want to end with the second one. So I'm going to start with the third paragraph and then jump up to the first paragraph and then come to the second. So uh, on paragraph three, it says baptism is a most solemn renunciation of the world. Those who are baptized in the threefold name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to take just a moment here. You notice that she says the threefold name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here we're told very clearly that we are to be baptized in this threefold name. That's pretty clear isn't it okay so we'll move on at the very entrance of their Christian life declare publicly that they have forsaken the service of Satan and have become members of the royal family children of the heavenly king now here she mentions the word entrance you notice I mentioned the word entrance just a few minutes ago but she mentions the word entrance here but here she says entrance into their Christian life but we're going to see that the entrance into the Christian life is paralleled with being the entrance into the kingdom. And that's also paralleled to entrance into the church. In paragraph one of, uh, testimonies to the church, volume six, page 91, it says the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's supper are two monumental pillars. One without and one within the church. Upon these ordinances, Christ has inscribed the name of the true God. There's so much here I want to bring out. So I want to take just a few minutes and I want to talk about this a little bit more. There are many different pillars. If we've ever studied the writings of Ellen White, we see that she talks about many different pillars. But there are two that are not just pillars. They are monumental pillars. One is within the church, and that's communion. The other, she says, is without the church. Why would it be without the church? Because it is the entrance into the church, and that is baptism. So why is baptism important? Because it's a monumental pillar, not just any pillar, but a monumental one. And they have the name of the true the true god inscribed upon them i i believe that probably most of us in here our ears perk up when we hear the true god when we hear that statement but if we understand the true god then we are going to understand that which the name is inscribed upon right wouldn't that make sense but I can also say that the converse is opposite. And that is that if we don't understand the two monumental pillars, then we really don't understand the name of the true God. Is that also a true statement based upon that? So again, why do you think this is important? Because the name of the true God is at stake. It is inscribed upon these monumental pillars. So it behooves us brothers and sisters that we understand these monumental pillars, that we understand in this particular case, the very entrance into the church. Paragraph two, Christ has made baptism the sign of entrance to his spiritual kingdom. That's the title of the series, thy kingdom come. He has made this a positive condition with which, how many must comply? all must comply what does all mean does that mean most 100%. everyone 100 percent, right everyone needs to comply who wish to be acknowledged as under the authority of the father the son and the holy spirit before man can find a home in the church before passing the threshold of God's spiritual kingdom, he is to receive the impress of the divine name, the Lord, our righteousness. So brothers and sisters, baptism is the entrance into Christ's kingdom, which is the entrance into the church. If I were to give directions to inside this church, my directions must include the entrance, which is back there, right? Those doors back there my directions really do need to include the entrance doors back there. Now, if I give these directions and somebody comes along and they make a mistake and they, they end up going into another building through another entrance. Are they in the church? No, they're not in the church. Now what Ellen White was talking about there, the church was not the structure. It was the body of Christ, but I'm paralleling that to the structure in a parable, if you will, to try to really drive home the importance of getting the entrance right. Because if we've missed the entrance to come into this church, then we're not actually in this church, are we? We're in a different church or a different building, whatever, whatever it may be. So also with the entrance into the body of Christ, we need to make sure we get through the correct entrance, don't we, in order to end up in the body of Christ. Yet again, showing that this topic is actually very important. Now, we were just told that to be in the church, we must go through the entrance, which is a monumental pillar, baptism, which means all must comply with and acknowledge the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I wanna take a quick look at the authority of each. We are to acknowledge this authority so let's look in, in, the, in the Word of God and see what it talks about, these, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let's start by looking at the authority of the Father. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1 tells us, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, hundred and forty and four thousand, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. In order to be a part of the hundred and forty-four thousand, we must have the father's name written in our foreheads, right? His character, name that here is representative of his character. So wouldn't you say the father plays a major role in our salvation? Definitely. Wouldn't that recognize, wouldn't that mean that we need to recognize his authority? Yes, most definitely. So let's look at the authority of the son real quick. John fourteen six. Jesus himself says unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So in order to get to the Father, in order to get the seal or the character of the Father in our forehead, where do we need to go? Through Jesus, right? Wouldn't you say that means that Jesus plays a pretty major part in our salvation as well? Absolutely, So wouldn't that mean we need to recognize His authority? Yes. Most definitely. Let's look at the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4.6, talking of the authority of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Zechariah 4.6. And it says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. If we don't have the authority of the Holy Spirit in our life, then we are doing it by might or power, aren't we? And, and we're told very clearly here that that's not going to happen. We're not going to get there that way. We must have the Holy Spirit. Also, if we look at John chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, and I really wanted to go greater into detail on John 3, because if you're talking about baptism, you really need to, go into John chapter 3 but suffice it with John 3 verses 5 to 6 Jesus answered verily verily I say unto thee now notice Jesus didn't just say unto thee he said verily and not just once but twice he's giving emphasis and we'll talk about emphasis here in a minute but he's giving an extreme emphasis saying that this is very very important I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It's very clear here that the Holy Spirit plays a vital part in our salvation. Do we see that? Absolutely. Wouldn't that mean we should recognize the authority of the Holy Spirit? Yes, we definitely need to. Now, does that mean that the Holy Spirit is a third intelligence or a third being? No, that's not what that means at all. Not in the least bit. Clearly, all three play major roles in our salvation and have authority in our lives to overcome. The Father is the one who seals us. Jesus is the way, and the Holy Spirit is the power that is given to us to overcome Review and Herald, October 26, 1897, paragraph nine. Christ gave his followers a positive promise. I want to pause here for just a moment. What did he give them? A positive what? Promise. promise. Should we throw out any promise that is found in the Word of God? No. no. I don't. I don't know about you, but I need every single promise that's there. Amen. Okay. What if somebody takes a positive promise, they pull it out of the Bible, they twist it and distort it to try to prove a false theology. Do we now have the right to take that promise out of the Bible and throw it away? No, No, we don't, do we? If it is a positive promise, then we need to leave it in the word of God. And we need to accept it and apply it as a promise within the context of the word of God so that we're not distorting it, right? but we still need to accept it and apply it. So going back to this, Christ gave his followers a positive promise that after his ascension, he would send them his Spirit. Go ye therefore, he said, and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the father. Then Ellen White says a personal God and of the son. And Ellen White under inspiration says a personal prince and savior. And then, it says, and of the Holy Ghost. And again, under inspiration, Ellen White adds, sent from heaven to represent Christ. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So brothers and sisters, baptism is a monumental pillar that is the very entrance into the church, and we are to be baptized in the threefold name of the father son and holy spirit and and com- we must comply and acknowledge being under the authority of the father son and holy spirit Amen. has that been pretty clear so far okay so that's the first part answering why is this so important and i hope that you're now thinking this is important those are some pretty strong statements And this is really important topic, but that leads me to the question, why were people baptized in the name of Jesus? There seems to be an apparent, and I emphasize the word apparent conflict between Matthew 28, 19 and what happens in the New Testament with baptism. I don't know about you, but I kind of struggled with that for a while. and. When I first came into the fast movement, the Father and Son truth, I was like, wait a minute, Matthew 28, 19, but that doesn't seem to be what the disciples followed. They baptized in Jesus' name. I don't understand. And, you know, I looked at the information because somebody said, well, Matthew 28, 19 has been added. I looked at the information, and I, no, I'm sorry. I, I don't accept that. Ellen White quoted it hundred-and-something times under inspiration so I'm sorry Matthew 28 19 has not been added it's not been put there it was, by by Catholicism or anybody else but by Christ he's the one that put it there so I was struggling with this and I want to tell you how it was presented to me I was given three options and obviously option one and two were meant to be more rhetorical to think about but they you could go with these options but I thought I heard option number one and within about three seconds I threw that out. No, that's not an option. I heard option number two, I thought about it for about 20 seconds and then I threw that out. That's not an option either. So I wanna look at these options real quick. Option number one that was given to me is the the disciples were rebellious. That's why they didn't follow Matthew twenty eight nineteen. Well, I, I'm hoping that everybody in here pretty much immediately goes, uh, sorry, that's not an option, right? I hope because that's not an option. If the disciples were being rebellious, brothers and sisters, then we might as well take the whole New Testament and throw it out because what else were they rebellious on? And in fact, we might as well just take the whole Bible because if God didn't correct it, throw out the whole Bible. Because how do we know that Isaiah wasn't rebellious on something or Daniel? We don't. So that's not a road that we can go down. Option number two is the disciples didn't understand Matthew 28:19. And so I thought about that for a minute, and the first thing that popped into my head was, but this was after Pentecost. So, mm, no, I can't accept that one either. But not only that, do you think God would allow the distortion of one of his monumental pillars without correction? No. No. So option three pretty quickly went out the window as well. Or option two. Now, option three is the one that I jumped on. And, but i don't think that's the best option and i'll tell you why here in just a moment so option number three is we must not understand matthew 28 19. now the reason i jumped on that is because i had just come from a teaching of triunitarianism whether it be trinitarianism tritheism or modalism which i tended to lean more towards tritheism but i had just come from that and so when when it was said well maybe we just don't understand matthew 28:19, instantly my brain was like Oh, yeah, I would agree Because that's one of the primary verses To try to teach that So I was, well, okay, yeah We must not understand it Well, I want to say that's a half-truth Because I also want to say, brothers and sisters That a large percentage that are in this movement Still don't understand Matthew 28:19. So I see a fourth option now As I began studying it, in fact, uh, about seven years ago, a good friend of mine came up to me and he asked, he said, so what do you think about baptizing in Jesus name only? And I said, well, it's what the disciples did. And he said, read this. And he hands me this. And it was an original, so he took it back with him. But uh, I didn't read the whole thing, but he opened it up to a certain section. He said, read this. It's about, I don't know, a page or something. And so I'm reading it and I'm reading it and I look up and my jaw hits the table. I was like, whoa, that makes sense. If you haven't read it, read it, it's powerful. But I see f- a fourth option. And since that time, I started to look into this and I realized that Matthew 28:19 is there. And we are to obey it and but I didn't go real deep you know I just kind of studied it for myself but when you study something for yourself that's not good enough to be able to teach it you need to know it inside and out before you teach it in fact if anybody stands up here and starts teaching on a on a topic they say well you know I really don't know plug your ears you don't want to hear nobody should teach from up here if they don't know So, why were people baptized in the name of Jesus? Well, I want to give you two reasons that I see. Now, there may be more other, more reasons, but these are two reasons that I see and that I want to touch on. Reason number one, it's about emphasis. And actually, as I was putting this together, uh, I was studying, and the way I personally study is I go to the Word of God. and. And I look. I, when I find a contradiction or an apparent contradiction, I pray and I say, Lord, how do I harmonize this? And so I, I go through everything I can find on the topic. And once I think I've got it harmonized, then I will bring in the writings of Ellen White. And every once in a while, I'll look at Ellen White and go, ooh, I must have missed something over here. And I'll go back and look and, and yeah, oh, I missed this. But I bring in the writings of Ellen White and then once all of that is meshing together beautifully, then I will bring in the pioneers. And once I got the first two, it's, it's a given that I'm seeing it in the, in the third witness as well, the pioneers. But I thought it was very powerful. Once I had put this together, I thought, you know, I need to read the whole book as well. And so I go through here and I read. He makes a statement about emphasis as well which I thought was very powerful and very interesting. Now, he says it a little bit differently than I do, but we're getting to the same point. So it's about emphasis. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, which is a part of what we read earlier, says, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, this will lead the impression to believe that he says, I now baptize you in the name of Jesus, cover his face, dunk. That's kind of what it sounds like. But I want to tell you that's not actually the case. It's about emphasis, and what do I mean by emphasis? Enoch may have preached the first or second coming of Christ, but that was not Enoch's emphasis, was it? Enoch's emphasis was the flood. Now, he may have talked about the first coming of Christ. He may have talked about the second coming of Christ, and we actually know that he did to some degree. He may have talked about what we should eat or what we should wear, what kind of lifestyle we should have, but that's not found in the Bible. And partly because, you know, Enoch lived a long time. He probably preached a lot of sermons. And if every sermon of his was put into the Bible, it would become too big for us to ever get through in a lifetime. So under inspiration, things were boiled down to the emphasis of his message. Everything that Enoch preached was not going to be contrary to anything else in the word of God, but we don't all need it from Enoch. We can see it everywhere else. So we don't need all those other details. So it's boiled down to Enoch's emphasis why did he emphasize it because it was present truth at that time and because it was where the controversy lie that's why enoch emphasized the flood but john the baptist john the baptist emphasized the first coming of christ didn't he but does that mean that john the baptist never talked about the flood I don't think so. Does that mean that John the Baptist never talked about the second coming of Christ or, or what we should wear or what we should eat or what kind of lifestyles we should live or the state of the dead or anything like that? No, I don't think that's the case at all. But yet again, if everything that John the Baptist ever preached was put into the Bible, it would become so big that we probably wouldn't ever be able to get through all of it. So it was boiled down to the emphasis. the present truth issue, which was the first coming of Christ. The the area of controversy at the time. There was a lot of controversy surrounding Christ, wasn't there? This is why John the Baptist was focusing in on that. And, And obviously because he was the forerunner to prepare people for Christ. So it was about emphasis. Now we will emphasize the fourth commandment A whole lot more than we are now at a time in the future the mark of the beast issue won't we why will we emphasize that because it's present truth at that time does that mean that we will never talk about the father and son truth does that mean that we will never talk about the first coming of christ or the flood or what we should wear what we should eat or what kind of lifestyle we should live no that doesn't mean that at all it just means that our the emphasis of our message at that time is going to be on the fourth commandment because it's present truth and because that is where the controversy will be at the time does that make sense so just because something isn't said in the Word of God doesn't mean it didn't actually happen I want to look at something that two Bible writers left out of their accounts of a story very interesting they two writers left an account out And one writer mentions it. Luke chapter 8, verse 26 and 27 says, And they, that is Jesus and the disciples, arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man, which had devils long time and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. How How many demoniacs met Jesus and the disciples according to this? A certain man. That's one, isn't it? Well, let's look at Mark. Same account, and they they came over unto the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. How many met them? One, according to this account. But now let's look at Matthew. Matthew tells us, and when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs exceeding fierce so that no man might pass by that way is matthew a liar because there's two against one no see friends it's all about emphasis the first two didn't feel it necessary to mention the second individual Maybe it's because the second individual wasn't the leader of the two. Maybe he wasn't as aggressive. He may have been a little bit behind. And the first one was the one that was probably really charging and rushing them. You know, when you, when you got somebody coming at you like that, you focus in on that, right? And then you run. And that's exactly what they did, didn't they? They turned around, they hightailed it back to the boat and left Jesus standing there by himself. There was one demoniac recorded in two of the Gospels, but two demoniacs were recorded in another because the other two disciples were showing the emphasis of the one. But Matthew comes along and says, there were actually two. So when we put them together, we see a greater picture, don't we? In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Luke evidently didn't find it important to emphasize the baptismal formula, but that doesn't mean it wasn't actually followed. Do you see where I'm going with that? Does that make sense? So reason one was emphasis. Reason two that I want to give is authority. I want to look at this for just a moment. Acts chapter 19 verses 1 through 8, we're going to read this and then we will actually look at what... Ellen White has to say about this. It says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Spirit since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? I want to pause here for just a moment. Now we learned earlier That before you're baptized, you need to be brought into the doctrines of the disciples or the apostles, right? Then you're baptized. Then you continue in that path. Well, these guys were missing kind of a major part. And so Paul is talking to them, and he asks them, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they say, we don't even know anything about a Holy Spirit. Can you imagine Paul's reaction? What? Wait a minute. Who baptized you? Who gave authority for you to be baptized? They should have studied with you. They should have talked about this before you were baptized. This is is kind of what Paul is asking. He's surprised that they don't understand that there's a Holy Spirit. They don't know anything about it. And so he's he's simply asking them, Why don't you know anything about this? Who gave authority for you to be baptized? And so what was their answer? And they said, Unto John's baptism then said paul john verily baptized with the baptism of repentance saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him that is on christ jesus and when they heard this they were baptized in the name of the lord jesus and when paul had laid his hands upon them the holy ghost came on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied and all the men were about twelve so paul he he's asking these brethren Uh, some questions have you received the Holy Spirit and they say no we've not so much as heard about that and Paul's who who gave authority for you to be baptized now if somebody comes into here and doesn't know anything about the Sabbath first question I'm going to ask is who gave authority for you to be baptized somebody should have studied with you so what am I gonna do next I'm gonna take them aside and I'm gonna say brother let's or sister let's have some studies let's look at the fourth commandment Let's look at the law first and then, and then go to the fourth commandment, so on and so forth, right? That's exactly what, exactly what Paul did with them. But before I go into the Acts of the Apostles, I just want to ask the question again. Who gave authority for the twelve to be baptized the first time? John the Baptist did. So let's look at Acts of the Apostles, 282, paragraph 3. Then the apostles set before them the great truths that are the foundation of of the Christian's hope. He told them of Christ's life on this earth and of his cruel death of shame. I want to pause here for just a moment. Here we can clearly see that Paul is studying with them now and revealing the doctrines to them. You see that? He, he brought them aside and he, starts, he sits down and he starts studying with them. Continuing on, he told them how the Lord of life had broken the barriers of the tomb and had risen triumphant over death. He repeated the Savior's commission to his disciples. What was that commission? All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. I want to stop there for just a moment. Power. That word power is authority. Jesus is saying all authority has been given to me, so therefore I am giving this authority to you to go baptize. This is what it means to baptize in Jesus' name, to baptize in the authority that Jesus gave us to baptize someone. That's not the baptismal formula. That's not the, I I baptize you in the name of Jesus. That's not what that is. Being baptized in the name of Jesus is simply saying that whoever is doing the baptizing is baptizing Based upon the authority of Christ Paul clearly repeated the baptismal formula very interesting so let's continue uh, he told them also of Christ's promise to send the comforter through whose might or through whose power mighty signs and wonders would be wrought and he described how glorious this promise had been fulfilled on the day of Pentecost with deep interest and grateful wondering joy the brethren listened to Paul's words By faith, they grasped the wonderful truth of Christ's atoning sacrifice and received him as their redeemer. They were then baptized in the name of Jesus. And as Paul laid his hands upon them, they received also the baptism of the Holy Spirit, by which they were enabled to speak the languages of other nations and to prophesy. Thus, they were qualified to labor as missionaries in Ephesus and its vicinity, and also go forth to proclaim the gospel in Asia Minor. Paul repeated the baptismal formula. The gospel record in the book of Acts didn't record that, but the gospel record in the Acts of the Apostles did record it. Sound kind of like the demoniacs issue? Two of them didn't record that there were two, but one of them did record that there were two. Just because something isn't recorded doesn't mean that it didn't happen. And so we find here with the second witness, we need to add, and you'll hear more about three witnesses sometime soon, but we need to add all three witnesses to our study. Take the Bible, study the Bible, try to find the conclusions and harmonize everything on your own with the help of of the Holy Spirit. And then bring in the writings of Ellen White to help harmonize, and then bring in the writings of the pioneers, all three witnesses. So in the second witness, we see something given to us that wasn't necessarily given in the first, that is the Acts of the Apostles. I mean, the book, the Acts of the Apostles, um, or the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles did reveal it, but the book of Acts didn't necessarily say that. Point number two is baptized in the name of Jesus is baptizing in Jesus' authority because he is the one who gave the command to baptize in the first place. But it is not the baptismal formula that is repeated. Jesus said and gave the command, gave the authority to go teach all nations, baptizing them in the threefold name. The command that was given came from Jesus. But we are to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Does that help to answer the question why Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, go baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? But then in in the, the, the New Testament, it says they baptized in Jesus' name. It's not saying that they stood there and said, I now baptize you in Jesus' name. What it's saying is that it wasn't, the authority didn't come from John, The authority didn't come from Paul. The authority didn't come from Apollos. The authority came from Christ to baptize. And so what they were doing is saying, I'm baptizing you because Christ has given me the authority to baptize you. So I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then dunk. Does that make sense now? We'll end with this statement. 1888, page 1541, paragraph one. Just before he left them, Christ gave his disciples the promise. Yet again, it's a promise. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. All power, all authority is given unto me in heaven. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. While these words were upon his lips. I wanna stop here for just a moment. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, according to inspiration is not added by Catholicism. It is not added by somebody else. Jesus said it. While these words were upon his lips, he ascended. A cloud of angels received him and escorted him to the city of God. The disciples returned to Jerusalem, knowing now for a certainty that Jesus was the Son of God. Their faith was unclouded, and they waited, preparing themselves by prayer and by humbling their hearts before God, until the baptism of the Holy Spirit came. Brothers and sisters, Jesus spoke the words of Matthew 28, 19, and we are called to obey them. Amen. Baptism is a monumental pillar that is the very entrance into the church. And we are to be baptized in the threefold name and must comply and acknowledge being under the authority of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The apostles baptized with the authority of Jesus in the threefold name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it. Do you believe it? Show of hands. Do you believe it? I want to ask one more question. And by a show of hands again, the question is, will you teach it? Amen. Let us, where possible, kneel in closing prayer. Heavenly Father, we again come boldly before your throne of grace, not because of what I have done, not because of what any one of us has done but because of what Jesus has done for us and because he is the one that told us to come boldly before your throne of grace. So we come in his name and his authority before your grace, before your throne of grace. And Father, I pray that again, that you will fill us with your spirit, that you will fill us so fully with your spirit that people no longer see us, but instead they see Christ in us. Father, I pray that as we go forward, teaching that which Jesus has taught us, teaching the people that you will speak through each and every one of us, that you will lead us and guide us so that we may teach the truth and, and not just in words, but in action also that people may see Christ in us. And even if we don't say a word, they will see Christ and that you will lead them to come to us and say, something is different. What is it that we may be able to teach unto them Jesus at that time. Father, I pray that you will give us divine appointments, that you will lead us, bring people to us. Father, I pray that this message will not just be a head knowledge, but that it will be a heart knowledge and that we will truly acknowledge the, your authority in our lives, the authority of Jesus in our lives, and also the authority of the Holy Spirit. This I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Let thy kingdom come. If you would like more information or have questions on the topics in this series, please contact us at info@phm.org. At